Hello, I'm Matthew Curtis, and welcome to this special edition of the Pellicle Podcast. Today's episode was recorded back in February at Cloudwater's Friends and Family and Beer Festival. It's hard to believe that such a brilliant event actually happened in 2020, but we're so glad it did, and we'll remember that weekend fondly for a long time to come. Huge thanks again to Paul, Doreen and Connor at Cloudwater for inviting Johnny and I up to host these talks at the festival. In this episode, I take great pleasure in chatting to two bona fide industry legends, Doug O'Dell from Odell Brewing Company in Fort Collins, Colorado, and Paul Wood, now retired but formerly of Manchester's own J.W. Lee's Brewery. Over the next half hour, we chat about how styles vital to the beer heritage of the United Kingdom, such as bitter and mild, remain as vital today and tomorrow as they've always been. And one additional very important thing about this episode. At the moment, I am not actively supporting J.W. Lee's Brewery due to their stance on beer taxation reform in the UK and how this might negatively affect many of the UK's small breweries. However, I really enjoyed this conversation and still consider it having value, hence why I'm sharing it. But not everything I say during this recording is reflective of my present stance. To know more, find me on Twitter at Total Curtis and I can give you a more updated view and tell you some active things you can do to help support small breweries. Huge thanks again to our Patreon subscribers for making this podcast possible, including Cloudwater, who are one of our pro-tier subscribers. If you're able to support Pellicle with a monthly donation, please head to patreon.com forward slash Mag. And now, it's on with the show. Good morning, everyone. Everyone looking very fresh-faced. Uh, which is great for a lovely day, day two of friends and family and beer. Uh, is every, has everybody received a, a sample? Claudia, what are we pouring? Salopian uh, Darwin's Origin, a fantastic modern bitter. Um, so Claudia will hand out some samples of that. Um, my name is Matthew Curtis. I am a beer writer and the co-founder of a new um, drinks magazine uh, with a strong focus on beer called Pellicle. There's a little banner uh, behind there. My colleague Johnny, who's uh, going to be selling some T-shirts. Um, uh, really excited to host this panel today, um, which is about bitter and mild. And I've got two luminaries uh, from, from the brewing world. Um, on my immediate left is Doug O'Dell, the co-founder of uh, Odell Brewing uh, from Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, sensational brewery. Please go and try their, their lovely beers. And we've got Paul Wood, the now retired, uh, semi-retired. Uh, you, would you say you're both semi-retired? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm retired. Doug is full retired. <laughs> oh, excellent. Excellent. Um, and brew house manager, was that your position? You've got, have you got your microphone there? Just to make, make sure everyone can, can hear you. Excellent. Yeah, I run the, uh, the brew house at Lee's as well. I run the site for around about 40 years until I retired. Um, and just before I retired, I set up um, a 10-barrel microbrewery called the Boiler House inside the brewery and um, decided uh, they wanted to keep me on for a couple of days, so I stopped two days a week um, running the Boiler House, so producing 
little wacky, weird and wonderful beers that we can't produce on the, uh, on the big plant. Excellent. And Doug, are you still brewing when you get the chance at Odell? Kind of the same as Paul, uh, not on our main system, uh, but we have a, um, well, it's like an eight hectolitre pilot plant that um, I still brew on. And it's much more hands-on than our main system. And it gives us the opportunity to try out different concepts, new ingredients, different ingredients, different yeasts. Um, gives you a lot more leeway than, uh, than you know, what you can brew on your main system where uh, you end up with a lot of beer, so it better be right. Whereas on a smaller system, if it doesn't quite work right, well, you can afford to dump it and try again. Excellent. So, Doug, I want to start by talking about um, your inspiration as, as a brewer, because d did I read that you came to the UK on your honeymoon? That's right. And uh, can you describe to me what experience it was at your first trip to the UK? As an adult. As yeah. an adult. I came here when I was 13 with my parents. But uh... So what was that the experience of beer you had? Because did, was that not a huge inspiration for you uh, as, as a brewer? Well, let's say it helped because, uh, um, yeah, we spent a week with uh, my wife's sister in London, and then we did a road trip up to Scotland. And so tried a lot of Cascale on the way up, and some good, some great, some off. <laughs> and uh, like you still see today, I think. Um, but uh, I really got to learn about the traditional English styles. Um, and that's what we opened our brewery with in 1989, was as representing ourselves as brewing traditional English styles. So it was a lot of influence. And I, I'll tell a quick story that just still sticks with us. Um, we had gone hiking in... Uh, um, Gosh, I don't, it was around Masham somewhere in some chalk hills. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of up and down. And so at the end of the day, we stopped at this little pub at the, back down at the bottom of the valley. Went in there, and they had Old Peculiar on cask. And it's like, oh, wow. Doesn't get any better than that. So once I had that, it was, I was sold on, oh, cask beer. There's a lot of great things about it, and it can be fantastic. So... That stuck with me, and, and of course now, if you're not making um, you know, 12% barley wines and imperial IPAs and, and sour beers, you're kind of not with the program. Um, so we have branched out significantly, but that's our, you know, that's our basis, was uh, what we started with as English style oils. And you have, you have a very uh, popular Scotch ale, don't you? 90 shilling. 90 shilling. Um, yeah, it's, if you were to taste it, you'd say, this isn't a Scotch ale. because, um, But it's more like a cross between a Scottish ale and an English pale ale because uh, I wanted something a bit hoppier. And uh, surprisingly enough, when we came out that, with that in 1989, it became our best-selling beer. And today, in the IPA world, it's still our best-selling beer. Not by much. I mean, our IPA is like 1% behind it. But it is surprising that that's had had lasting appeal. I call it the anti-IPA at this point. Excellent. So, Paul, you, you, um, you were brewing for how many years? Um, I'm in 48th at Lees's. Yes. So you, you spent m most of that time brewing Lees Bitter and, and, and Mild. Yep. What would you say is the, the appeal of, of classic styles like those? 
it's got to be the, the balance of the beer, the consistency of the beer, and the quaffability of the beer. I mean, that's what's important. You, you're brewing, we as a brewer brewed for the masses. We have a state of 140 odd pubs, and you've got to please that person every single time, and that beer's got to be consistent. I mean, you've got, you've got your biggest critics out there. They know how that beer tastes because they drink it day in and day out. Forget what we do at the brewery. We taste it. But they're, they're the ones who know more about the beer than what we will because they're drinking it every single day, some of them. Um, obviously, um, the way people drink beer has changed. We've got so much variety and, change, and there's so many different types of beer outside, out there now. Um, and sales are a bit flat uh, of, of cast beers, but they're still there. It's still our biggest seller. So, it's so I want to want to drop a little statistic. Um, there's a brewery in London founded in 2013 called the Five Points Brewing Company. They launched a best bitter, uh, very anti-trend against the sort of New England IPA pastry stout trend. They launched a, a best bitter, uh, hopped with fuggles um, in in uh, about a year ago now, and the result of that beer launching was it increased their cask beer sales by 50 percent year on year, which is against the, um, the national trend for Cascale. So over the last two years, it's seen a decline of around 12% uh, in, in volume. Um, so why do you think in, in uh, you know, what, what would ostensibly be a very hip part of East London uh, with, a, with a younger drinking crowd, why do you think there might be a resurgence happening uh, for, for bitter? What goes around comes around. <laughs> it's as simple as that. I mean, bitter's always been there. Um, it's it's still a great seller. It's still a great beer. Um, we've got a massive variety now. Uh, things have changed so much. If you go back to the 1970s, you looked at a bar. We, we probably had three three amples or three pumps on the bar. One would one would have been bitter. One would have been mild, and the other had been lager. I was in my local pub last night. It's got 14. You know that's that's the difference. Is that too many? Do you think? No, no. I think you've got to give people what they want. You know, um, it, it's. It's, it's about choice, and obviously it, it eats into the market, it takes away some of the cast beer, but it's replaced by something else, and uh, some of the, sort of the bitters, say. The mild is a different kettle of fish. Uh, we still brew a mild. Uh, we call it dark now. The, the name mild seems to have gone, um, but uh, it's really the fact that it's in keg form that keeps that ticking away in cast form, really. But, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just choice and changes. Can I have a show of hands who's had a nice pint of bitter in the last 12, six months? So pretty much everyone, not, th not that person there, no, shaking the head. Okay. <laughs> More beer de garde then. Um, and how about mild? Oh, that's a good show of hands. So there you go. It's back. Why do you think... Could, what is it about mild that could bring it back into popularity? Is it the same as bitter? It doesn't think, quite think, have the same appeal. I think we're looking at like less weaker beers, aren't we? So miles tend to be about around about 3.5%. So people are tending to be more conscious of the, the amount of alcohol that's in a beer. So they're, they're looking at uh, lower gravity beers maybe. And, but, I mean, there's some cracking miles out there. Uh, and if, if, you, if you go back in time again, the problem with mild is the simple fact it got a bad reputation, particularly in the days of autobacks and filtering back, where people used to literally collect everything that was left behind or the drip trays and put it back into the mild and people was conscious of that. Fortunately, it doesn't happen anymore, but it used to on a regular basis. So mild's quality was never great. But if you go back to the 1950s, John and Louise were producing eight pints of mild for every pint of bitter. 
And you're still using the same yeast? I'm still, no, probably, well, 60 years, 60 odd years it's been going. <laughs> Excellent. Doug, Odell has shifted a little recently. Uh, at this festival, you've brought uh, a beer called Mountain Standard, um, which is a hazy IPA, uh, which is fascinating to see. Um, Odell was founded in 89? Yes. And, and here you are with a, with a hazy IPA. So w- why, do you, why does a brewery like Odell need to invest in, in these modern styles? Uh, it's mainly to brew beer that the people want. And, uh, you know, we, we brew our, our beer for ourselves, but we also brew for our customers. And if our customers tell us that they're interested in having us produce a certain style of beer, well, then uh, I think it makes good uh, customer service sense and good business sense to follow that lead. And as far as the Mountain Standard... Uh, it's hazy because it's unfiltered and because it's got some a lot of uh, wheat mold in it. Um, but we don't go out of our way to make it hazy. I'm proud to say that. <laughs> I wouldn't say uh, hazy IP is my favorite style. But um, we also have a beer here called Good Behavior, which is 4%. But it's, we call it a session IPA. And that's unfiltered as well. So it's not clear. Um, but it's not murky. And if that's what people want, and to be honest with you, I think um, if you leave the solids in there, it gives it a, a, a more appealing mouthfeel to an extent. I mean, it can't be thick, syrupy stuff, um, but also a, a more distinctive character uh, in the mouthfeel. I'm interested to know, as you, with your outsider's perspective, as someone who... who who loves British beer culture, is how do you feel when you hear that, that cask ale is in double-digit decline? What's your reaction to that? Well, I mean, I, it, it's been doing that for years and years, and that's one of the things that camera has been trying to reverse. And I thought they had actually stabilized it for a while, but it, maybe it, it resumed its drop. Uh, well, it's... It's all the new stuff. You know, people see IPAs and people see sours and people see imperial stouts. And, and so those are all new things and everybody wants to try them. But um, in the end, if you look at what people have been drinking for centuries, it's the three and a half, four or five percent beer. And so sure, you can have double IPAs and, and sours out there that are interesting and very distinctive, but that's not something you want to drink every day. And so I think it just comes around to, it's the pendulum effect. It goes so far in one direction that it comes back to the centrist point, which is what um, bitters and milds are. And we don't have that tradition in the United States, but we do have um, a, you know, light-colored lager, and that used to have a, well, it still does have a, uh, a pretty bad name when you look at mass-produced industrial light American lager. Uh, but it's certainly possible to make um, a beautiful uh, Pilsner beer or a Hellas that has a lot more character than Budweiser, yet is still kind of follows the craft vein of flavor and character and distinction. And so we're, we're going through the same thing, session IPAs, where it's gone so far in the direction of super strong uh, uh, you know, imperial stouts that it's coming back. And there's been less, um, there's, 
there's been uh, less of a hindrance to do so in the United States because I don't know how many of you know, but uh, the duty on, on beer is the same amount per barrel if it's 4% or if it's 13%. So there's no escalating duty like there is here. And so the only disincentive to making a 13% imperial stout is the extra cost in the ingredients. It doesn't cost you any more in tax. And so that made them even more prevalent, I think, in the, in the scheme of things. And so it per, perhaps was even stronger up there where it has to return to normalcy at some point. And that's, that's what's happening all over the place. Uh, we've seen the extremes. They're still out there. We can still drink them, but that's not what we want every day. I'm going to throw this next question out to both of you, starting with you, Doug. What would you say to encourage people who might not have tried bitter or mild to, to try these, uh, these balanced, uh, sessionable styles that might be drawn into beer for the first time by hazy IPA and, and, and pastry stout? Oh, I, I, I would say... You're, you're looking for a different set of, um, of distinctiveness, of distinctions here. And you're looking for a different experience. It's not what's going to knock your palate, you know, as far out to uh, the outfield as you can hit it. it. It's about elegance and balance and, and determination of individual flavors and, and experiencing, yeah, just the... the the balance and and the really the brewer's art because you can hide a lot of flaws in a in an imperial stout, but to make a good bitter, I mean that that takes a lot of talent, I believe, and and perhaps maybe the resurgence that you're talking about, I would like to think it's fueled by um, better hop processing practices because years ago, um, well, for I'm sure since the beginning of time at these heritage breweries. Uh, I, I don't know if you're still this way, Paul, but typically um, if you're taking a tour and you go up to the hop store, it's somewhere up higher in the, uh, in the brewery and um, it's not refrigerated. And so, uh, you know, on a summer day, it could be 30 degrees up there. And so, you know, hops are baking and that's not good for the freshness and character of the hops. And in addition... Um, it's very important to pay attention to uh, hop kilning temperature and the time it takes to to kiln the hops. And so, if you overfire it and just and get it too hot, it it, it dries out and um, drives off those essential oils that make uh, these beers so elegant in the first place. So, I think just a uh, um, kind of a a better regard for your raw materials and and how you process them and keep them. I, I think will, if not already, will contribute to this resurgence. I agree. A couple of things for you, Paul. First, I'd like to know your your feeling on the initial question, like how can we get these younger drinkers who are just discovering beer into more traditional styles? I th similarly, again, I think they will come to these beers. Um, I, I completely agree with what Doug said there. I mean... I am running the boiler house now, so we're, we're playing around with different materials, different ingredients. And the great thing about producing a bitter is the fact that you're producing that bitter for a lot of people and it's got to be consistent all the time. That's the great thing about my job now. I mean, you, you've got the greatest critics out there. Everybody knows exactly how that beer should taste and it's got to be perfect and consistent day in and day out, week in and week out. And But I think... The, the main thing that they may come to is they won't wake up in the morning spitting feathers. 
So, That's definitely happened to no, no one in this room before. Um, and how, how do you feel about what Doug just said about British hops? Because I, I wanted to talk actually about the stigmatization of British hops and um, uh, the word twiggy has been thrown around for the last couple of decades. But I had a really interesting experience um, when I visited uh, Hukin's Hops near Tenterden in Kent recently, um, who are building their own kiln because um, Kent is home to the traditional British Oast House where they would uh, process hops. But um, the Hukins family are building a US-style uh, kiln. Not, not, they're not calling it an Oast. So how important do you think uh, this, uh, this embracing of modern hop processing technology could uh, affect British, traditional British styles? We have a great hop industry in this country and we produce some of the finest hops in the world. Um, we, we've got plank, we've had a plant growing program going on for many, many years. Um, what you've got, people looking, have been looking for a different type of op. They've been looking for more like Citra, Mosaic, Cascade, these, these kind of ops. But we've got the finest op in the world, which is East Kent Goldings. And we've got a great op in Fuggles. And they, they, we still predominantly use Goldings in our bitter. Always have done, always will do. And it is a great op, and they've not been as popular as some of the other ops, but they'll come back, and they're a great op with a, you know, they give really great herbal aromas come from, spicy aromas come from. They're excellent ops. We just don't appreciate them quite as much. If I'm brewing a beer, I would prefer to use an English op if I can get, you know, a British op if I can get hold of it. And I will say, if any of you uh, in uh, in the autumn get a chance to visit a hop farm in either somewhere like Herefordshire or or Kent, and you get to walk among goldings as they flower, uh, it's pretty intoxicating. It smells like lemon. It doesn't smell anything like what you might assume British hops uh, to uh, uh, to smell like. Also, hops uh, make you very sleepy, so it's quite quite a, a nice tranquil experience to to walk among the vines. I encourage you to do it if you if you get the chance. Um, before we throw some questions out to the audience, I'd like, um, Paul, do you think in terms of Cascale, there's maybe, you know, you talked about this selection. Do you think a, a, a small, concise selection of well-kept cask is superior to having lots of cask? Because you talked about having this choice, but um, if cask isn't selling, uh, surely a smaller selection on the bar would be better, would it not? Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I said my, my local has got 14 different ampoules on. Uh, if they're not all cask, there's only four casks on there, and probably that's about your limit, unless you've got a pub that's turning around about a lot of beer. I mean, that, 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 if, you, if you tap a cask, it needs selling in 72 hours if you want to keep the, the, the quality absolutely pristine. And what do you think the future for styles like Bitter and Mild is? What does it look like to you? I think it's always going to be there. I mean, the only reason that you've had a decline in, in, in the likes of Bitter and Mild, particularly Bitter of recent years, is because the choice is out there. You know, you, you, you go in a pub now, like I say, you had three, three, three pulls on the bar, now you've got 12. You've got a, a designated wine cabinet, sir, full of wine, bottle cabinets. There's a massive variety out there, which I think is a great thing. And I think some of the beers that have come along, uh, the, some, of the, some of the guys that are here have been pretty inspirational to us. You know, we, we were probably stuck in the mud. We brewed a cast bitter, we brewed a cast mild. It, it made us sit up and think, what can we do differently and can we produce different beers? And yes, we can. So it, it, was, it was invigorating, let's say that. You know, the, 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 resurg the surgeons of craft brewers 
of, of which I consider ourselves a craft brewer, because I think craft is something that's been going for a long time. Excellent. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. And Doug, what does the future of uh, bitter and mild look like to you? Well, first of all, I'd say I'd like to say it's rather ironic that if you were if you go to Paul's table or ours, he's serving an eleven and a half percent harvest ale. And uh, right now we've got a 9.9% uh, oak aged Scotch ale. So uh, where is the, the, the bitter and mild in those? <laughs> uh, but this is the beer festival. Um, and so there's room for all sorts of styles. But as far as the future, uh, if they're well made and ingredients are getting better and better all the time, brewing technology, we understand it better all in all, uh, all the time. Um, there's always going to be room for a uh, easy drinking, satisfying beer that you can sit around and socialize with and not stumble home. Excellent. Thank you, both of you. And can I uh, ask if anyone has any questions? I'll come out with the microphone because we're recording this um, for a podcast. Does anybody have any questions for our panelists about bitter and mild? Yes. Hi, guys. A um, bit more of like an observation in terms of we're talking about the future of bitter and mild. It's all, I think, and like now over there, there's like triple IPAs and everything like that, like super hoppy boys. Um, but I think something that plays a part is like a, a generational thing in terms of the, the venue where the beer is being served, in terms of now you've got all these indie tap rooms where you, it's kind of set up for keg lines rather than like hand-pulled cask. Um, and I think there is a, obviously we see a lot of traditional pubs closing down and things like that. And I wonder if that is playing a part in terms of the popularity of the traditional cask ales in terms of bitter and, and mild. I think you've got all these little in the, in the tap rooms, yes, but you've also got a lot of traditional pubs there that are selling the cask bitter that, that we want to drink. And we've got a few pubs in town here that uh, do exceedingly well serving that cask bitter. And th there'll always be an outlet and a market for it, definitely. And I think there's room for everybody. I think, I think we've, we've got, you know, it, what goes around comes around, and it's it's everything's cyclical, and you, you you see changes all the time, and and it's it's good to see changes, you know. I think you, I think you need, you know, gone are the days when uh, I, I would think if you go back to the seventies, fifty percent of the of, of the of the brewery would finish work and go straight in the pub at tea time, straight from work, and they'd have six pints. I mean, when John when, when John Willoughby's built his brewery uh, in Middleton Junction, they did it for a reason. He did it because it was surrounded by cotton mills, and he, he was a manufacturer of cotton up in Oldham. And then he, he, he built his, he, he, shot, he sold his two mills and opened a brewery. And he did that because he had a perfect, he had, he had all his clientele right on site. So instead of uh, paying them wages, he was actually taking the money off them because everyone went in and used to drink six or eight pints a mile before they went home. So, but uh, there's, there's always going to be a pub. There's all, there'll always be outlets for pubs, definitely. I, I think that. Um if the market for beer will continue to expand, that gives more everybody an, an, more of an opportunity. So really what we've seen in the United States is, um, I mean, Paul mentioned it with his wine cabinet and these pubs, uh, more choice. And, uh, you know, kind of um, untraditional cocktails are, are getting more and more popular. 
there's a lot more wineries out there. So the competition for uh, the alcoholic drink out there is, is broadening and getting uh, much stronger. And so if we can continue to build on what beer is and what it always has been and what it can be, uh, there will be opportunity for a lot of different approaches to the business. You're opening a winery so, as well, aren't you, Doug? Oh, <laughs> we are. <laughs> we are. I mean, is that a... Uh, uh, are we being hi hypocritical here? I don't know. But um, one of the things we want to test out is, uh, and it's going to be an urban winery, and the difference between that and what we consider a traditional winery is we're not uh, exemplifying the agricultural part of it or the provenance of the terroir and the beautiful rolling vineyards. I mean, we're going to can our wine, and so this is going to be an urban experience. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. But uh, we also want to experiment, experience, uh, well, experiment with um, beer-wine hybrid styles. And right now with our brewing license, we can go up to 50% uh, fermentables of, of wine grape juice. Uh, but from the other side, with a winemaking license, we can, do, we can go up to 50% 50, 50 um, malt fermentables. So we're going to see what we can do with these sort of blends and, uh, and natural wines and and kind of um, combination, uh, uh, maybe Britannomyces wines, which have always been a, bread has always been a swear word in the, in the mind of vintners. And so, um, I mean, we're going we're gonna to experiment with a lot of different things with, and hopefully reach some people um, who, never, who have never even imagined that bread is, is, is considered taboo in a wine. So uh, we'll see. Can't wait for my ne next trip to Fort Collins to, to try those. Any more questions? Bates. How's it going? Uh, Got to say, 90 Shilling, one of my favorite beers of all time. I drank a shitload of it when I lived in Colorado. <laughs> so it's a great beer. Um, this is more a bit insider sort of thing. Like, I run a brewery and stuff like that, and we're focused on smaller beers. Um, I'm not really chasing the game of double IPAs and stuff like that. But it's hard not to when you have so much pressure to do that. So... How did both of you kind of keep your nerve during that time that you saw the escalation of it? Because I see it over here and like the pressure on us to like brew a double IPA, brew a DDH pail, all that sort of stuff. But I have no interest in it. Um, I want to, as you said, have things that are more sessionable, things that you can have quite a few with your friends, um, thought provoking sort of beers that are quiet, um, but are very intricate if you take the time to dissect them. But that's a tough one to sell sort of over here, but I like to keep my bears in that kind of four or 5% range. How did you stay the course and not sort of feel the pressure of that sort of thing? Well, I, I wouldn't, I mean, I would say that we, I mean, we did do those things. I mean, we've got a 9.3% double IPA called mercenary that sells pretty well. Um, yet uh, 90 shilling is still our best selling beer. And so, uh, Maybe we were fortunate to have that from the beginning. Um, but our approach is that we want um, to try and have something for everybody in every occasion. I mean, it's impossible to, to do that endlessly because you can't have 50 different brands out there. That would drive you nuts and probably uh, make it so you'd lose money on every, every one of them. Um, but to have a variety of, of beer choices and styles available... Uh, because our, our customers are a variety of people, and they're looking for different beers on different occasions. And it's not, it's not always that somebody wants to drink a, 
uh, New England IPA, and it's not always that somebody wants to drink a, you know, a light pilsner. People do cross style drinking, and so uh, I think that if you can, if you believe in the importance of the beers that aren't hot, and you do put some attention to those, that um, you know they they have lasting appeal. And you've certainly got some traditional brands out there that are doing well, so. Yeah, I mean, we, we've always had an estate of pubs, so we've always been, been lucky enough to be able to sell our beers in 10 pubs. Um, and, but we, we have diversified, we have brought in different beers. We do have a uh, Manchester's Pale Ale now, we do have a Craft Pale. Um, and you've got to give the people what they want at the end of the day. Um, and we we do brew beers from 11.5% down to, we've recently brewed about 2%. Uh, and I'd sooner brew the one at 11.5%, the one at 2%, because it's a heck of a sight more difficult to impart flavours in some at 2% than what it is 11.5%. So, and it's getting that consistency. But what we've got to remember as well is um, people are much more, particularly young people, are much more health aware nowadays. And they're, they're not looking for your six, seven, eight percent beers. They're looking, they're looking for a traditional bitter like you're, like you're brewing yourself. For, I think 4% is the ideal volume of ABV to, for, to produce a beer. You get the consistency, get the, uh, the balance right with the ops, and you've got the perfect beer to sit down and have a few pints and enjoy. Thank you very much. That's all we've got time for. Can you put your hands together for Doug and Paul? That was uh, wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for tuning in, folks. If you're able to support the content we produce at Pellicle, please consider making a monthly donation via Patreon. You can sign up by visiting patreon.com forward slash Mag. Remember to subscribe, and if you can, please leave us a review in your podcast app of choice, as this will help more people find the show. Until next time, I've been your host, Matthew Curtis, and you've been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. <laughs>